Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with Seth Godin, who is wise about life, the Internet, and everything. There's a shorter produced version of this at Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they, they're not. Can you hear me, Seth? Oh. Oh, Krista. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> that echo is me, right? Um, I hear. I'm. I'm hearing the echo too. So let me turn my own headphones down a little bit. It's his headphones. Okay. It's all your fault, Seth. Fix it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. Other people will help you. It's <laughs> I know you are. Um and I, I Okay, so I am not hearing an echo anymore. So that's good for me. So Krista is now echoless. Mm-hmm. But I still have an echo. <laughs> yes, she sounds just like she sounds. <laughs> And you keep talking, Seth, and that's how we can tell. Okay, that makes sense. So these two uh, cannibals are eating a clown, and one cannibal says to the other cannibal, "Does this taste funny to you?" (laughs) And then, and then these other two cannibals are eating lunch, and one cannibal says to the other cannibal, "You know, I never really did like my mother-in-law," and the other one says, "So shut up and just eat the noodles." (laughs) And I'm still hearing an echo. I can live with it, but I'm still hearing it. You're hearing an echo? Because I'm not actually hearing it. So when I finish a sentence, I hear ents. Hmm. But again, I can live with it if it... No, you you can't live with it, Seth. It will make you crazy. Okay, I'm turning my headphones down a little bit. (laughs) I know. And maybe maybe, uh, uh, Chris can just turn Seth down on your headphones if you need your headphones up for you. Um... I mean, I just turned my headphones down a little bit. Does that make any difference, Seth? If you, uh, what did you have for breakfast? I know this will be an interesting answer. It's the same every day. It's a frozen banana, two kinds of hemp, almond milk, walnuts, and four dried plums. Unless oh. I'm feeling a little racy, in which case there's five dried plums. See, it may be the, the same thing you gone. have every day, but it's interesting for the rest of us. The echo is gone. Okay, great. Good. Can we um, can we go? So I don't. I, 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 you probably know this, but we um, we post the unedited interview, and then we also turn it into a little work of art, and that's what you hear on the radio. So the I've rest been of the listening world. To the, I've been listening to the unedited interviews. Have and you? I don't know when you start the unedited part, but I hope you'll start now because what <laughs> I want to say yeah. for the unedited part is that your work is so consistently generous and so important and so undervalued that I wanted to be on the record, at least in the unedited part, (laughs) talking about how grateful I am for what you do. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, Well, 
I feel like, you know, you and I have been having. So we've started a conversation, and then and then you listen to me, and I read you. So we, I think that conversation continues even when we're not talking. But I'm, I've really been looking forward to this. And you know, I've been, uh, I've been reading you for a long time. So I'm, I really want to draw, and I went back to look at some of your earlier things as well as uh, the new book. Tell me this: the new book comes out in January. Is there a date? Uh, it's December 31st. Oh, okay. I have four, four books coming out at the same time. Okay. The Icarus Deception is coming out that day, too? Correct. Okay. That's, that's the real book, and everything else is sort of an echo or a shadow of mm-hmm. that book. So I think we're going to put this on the air kind of mid-January. Does that sound okay perfect. with you? Okay. That's perfect. Um, and... But I, but I just, I, I want to say we're not just going to talk about that one because, as you know, oh, I, I like fine. to get at the I'm sweep not, of you. I'm actually you. not here. The sweep I'm not of here you. to sell books. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, you don't really need me to sell books, but, uh, but uh, I want to talk about, I want to talk about you as well as this, this whole trajectory of your ideas. So let's just start. Um, Ready. Okay. Um, so you know, I want to start with where I usually start my interviews, whoever I'm talking to. Um, and I, and actually, in all that I've seen you write across the years, I have I haven't heard you talk about this too much. You know, was there um, a spiritual background to your childhood? Well, I grew up with two incredible parents um, and learned a lot about faith. Um, there wasn't a lot of religion, and there was a lot of faith, and that um, dichotomy I think is really important. As in, and it's informed a lot of the way I've lived and what I've written about. Mm -hmm. And by faith, I mean uh, faith in community, faith in charity and in philanthropy, faith faith in innovation and what happens when people make a ruckus or do hard work, um, faith in education, faith in taking initiative. I mean, I was a free-range kid. Um, Mm -hmm. My parents, my dad put me on a boat with a semi-stranger to crew when I was 14, and he abandoned me in downtown Cleveland at 1 o'clock in the morning. And I found my way home. On and purpose? The next morning, well, I don't think he abandoned me on purpose, <laughs> but I found my way home on purpose. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, you get home the next day having been seasick for two days and stranded with um, very little in resources. And when my mom picked me up at the airport at 10 a.m., she took me to school. It was like, well, you don't get a sick day. Hmm. That's part of what we do. Hmm. And this idea, you know, my dad was the volunteer president of the United Way, and my mom was on the board of the local art museum and helped start what became the Modern Museum Store. Um, I grew up in this house where there was this understanding that if someone didn't have a place to go, they stayed with you, and that if there was a way to help, you helped. And, you know, we weren't the most well-off people in town, but my parents understood that they had a position and a role in the community, and any chance they had to lead... Uh, was one that they should take. And if they had a chance to support someone or connect with someone, uh, they should. And one thing that um, was particularly when I wrote about tribes, I talked about religion is sort of an edifice that human beings have built on top of faith, Mm -hmm. that religion is a, a human act that enforces the power of a leader over a group. And it builds in sort of doctrine to make sure that it keeps going. But it's supported by human beings' ultimate desire to have faith and hope in the future. Mm. And I think that every time our systems start to break down, it may be because we're emphasizing too much on the side of doctrine and rules and what worked yesterday 
and not enough in the form of what do we believe in and where do we want to go. So, you know, that, that story you just told about your upbringing, too, um, kind of leads me to an experiment I wanted to do with you, which is, uh, as, you, as you may know, I just recently interviewed Brene Brown, who is someone you love, um, uh, you've drawn a lot of inspiration from, um, has, as have many people. And, <clears throat> you know, she, she makes some, I think she's talking about things that are actually really basic and, and elemental in terms of who we are as human beings, but they're things we stopped being conscious of or knowing how to put words around. Um, and she makes a connection between struggle and hope and adversity in the most, you know, you common uh, sense of that in, in childhood. Um, as you know, that she, you know, she says these things like, uh, which run counter to our, to our very to the very protective parenting mode that a lot of us have gotten into. Um, that in fact, it's the moments in our lives when we when we had to struggle and when we did something. Uh, when we got out of a jam, we didn't, and we didn't know how we could do that. That that those are the moments we became who we who we are. So that's a long-winded way of saying what I I thought I might ask you. You know, people who know you think of you not just as a successful person, but a phenomenally successful person. And I wonder if you would talk to me um, about, given that, given all that you've accomplished in as an entrepreneur and as a publisher and as a writer and as a thinker, if you would talk a, a little bit about the moments of struggle and adversity and failure in, in your life that helped make you who you are, that actually are part of the foundation of all that success. Well, I'm, I've never been shy about talking about the professional failure because I wouldn't trade any of it. Uh, after I luckily sold my first little book for not very much money, I then decided I might be able to do that for a living and got 900 rejection letters in a row over the course of a year. Um, we used to go window shopping in restaurants and then go home and eat macaroni and cheese for dinner. Mm. And then for the next seven to ten years, my company was basically on the verge of bankruptcy the whole time. Uh, we almost missed payroll about four times. We once had to send a sales guy to drive to MasterCard to pick up the check that they had owed us for a sponsorship because if we had waited one day for FedEx, we would have gone out of business. <laughs> um, and there were you know, really dramatic stuff like when the vice president of AOL threatened to have me arrested if I came to her office to apologize for something we had screwed up, mm. um, or having to fire uh, our biggest client, who was two-thirds of our business, just because they were jerks. Mm. And we decided that we didn't want to work with jerks and become the kind of company that was good at working with jerks. Mm. But what they all had in common, particularly in the early days, was this sense of... Uh, as, as Brene has talked about, being caught out as a fraud and having the world say, you know, we figured you out. You don't deserve mm. any success, mm. and it's all over. And when you, when you hear that, and so many of us are capable of hearing it just from the slightest negative response, just from the smallest slight, we then decide it's all over. Um, then the question is, what are you going to do with that feedback? And I think this, again, goes back to my parents because what the habit I developed was that that's not a no. That's a no for now. Mm. 
That's not a, this will never work. That's a, this didn't work. But I learned something about what might work for next time. And so there was, you know, the, the cold fear, the deep emptiness in the pit of your stomach because there's 50 or 100 people who are counting on you to pay them. Hmm. Or the fact that you've worked on a project for a year or two years or three years and now it might just be over. And the question is, is that something that we flee from? Or is that something that we use to tell us that we're alive? And I guess the habit I've developed is one where I say, I got to make it so I can stay in business. I got to make it so that the work I'm doing is always something I'm proud of and that's ethical, that holds up to scrutiny. But within that framework, what I seek out is how to play with an idea, with a community, with a conversation that might not work. And I think that's what we call art sometimes. Yeah, you know, art is a word you're using a lot these days. Is that is that a word that... Well, let's get to that in a minute. Because something that, um, that I'm really intrigued by, that I feel you're adding to, is this sense or this knowledge that we all have that we are living in a moment of great flux. We are living in evolutionary times. Um, and, uh, you know, you... you I, I read as I was digging into you that Charles Darwin was a really formative figure for you, or, uh, and, uh, that his ideas have been informed. And, uh, at, at, at what point at your, of your life was that? Early? Was that... Um, well, I got him to write the, intro, the foreword for a book I wrote, which was not easy because he's dead. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah. So I took, uh, I read through uh, a couple of his books and just took sentences out of context and strung them all together uh, to make a new foreword. I guess I first got introduced uh, to the thinking by by Dan Dennett, who was my philosophy professor at Tufts, mm -hmm. who's gone on to write a bunch about his work. Uh, people impart a, a lot into the notion of evolution, some of which wasn't Darwin's work itself. But what is important here is not only do times change, but those times change not just our stories about ourselves and our expectations, but they actually are changing our brain. Yeah. So, you know, when the Industrial Revolution came, uh, there were 20 years when basically everyone in Manchester, England, was an alcoholic because instead of having, like, coffee carts, they had gin carts that went up and down mm. The, mm. The, the streets because it was so hard to shift from being a farmer to sitting in a dark room for 12 hours every day doing what you were told. But we evolved to become the kind of people, and I'm not saying we evolved in a biological sense in just four generations, but we culturally evolved to be able to handle a new world order. And, and so when we talk about evolution as a metaphorical thing where we have memetics and ideas laid on top of this idea of uh, survival of the species and things uh, changing over time, what fascinates me about it is that this bottom-up change in the world is everywhere all the time, so much more common than change that gets put down on us by a dictator or by someone who is putatively in charge. Right. And yet, and yet we ignore this bottom-up thing when, in fact, it's the thing we are most likely to be able to touch and change. But also, I, I, I think what you're pointing at in a lot of your work is that is that because of the way the world has changed objectively, because 
we're living in a post-geography world, that's a phrase you use, because we are experiencing all the consequences of the dismantling of the industrial era. Um, <clears throat> because we have what you call a connection economy. We, technology, technology is actually empowering those, that bottom-up change, right? And kind of dismantling the hierarchical, uh, overbearing leader model that a lot of us actually still grew up with. And at the same time, that is what's empowering technology. So mm -hmm. they're both feeding on each other. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can see the visible thing like Wikipedia, which exists because human beings want to chronicle the world around them. But we also realize that the Internet wasn't built by 30 people who were working for a boss. It was built by 300,000 people, many of whom have never met each other. Mm -hmm. And that this protocol and that technology work together even without a central organizing force. And that's happening to every industry, and it's happening even to the way our communities organize and the spiritual organizations that we get involved in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so then I want, I want to come back around to the idea of art, because um, one of the things you say is that, that as a result of this this form of change and the demands it places on us and the opportunities it presents to us, we, one of those is that we are all artists now. So talk to me about that connection. So, you know, on the way into the studio today, I passed a 1934 Rolls-Royce. And in those days, if you were really rich, you bought a fancy, expensive car like that. And then you think about something like a Persian rug, which lots of ways to cover your floor. You didn't need to spend that kind of money. So we went through this era where you would value something that was physical. But now the things we pay extra for are connection, right? The things mm -hmm. we pay extra for are what are other people using? What networks can we be part of? What conference can we go to? Who can we be with? And the people we choose to be with, the products and services we choose to talk about are all interesting and unique and human and real as opposed to industrial and cheap and polished and normal. Mm -hmm. And so as individuals, what we have to see is a shift has gone on from the days of Henry Ford when one creative person had 50,000 people acting on their wishes, right. right? That you designed the car and then a whole bunch of people followed your instructions. We went from a ratio of 50,000 to one to a ratio of one to one. Now, one person working by themselves can make an idea, a product, a service, something in the world. And that shift in leverage means that you're not going to make it as a worker bee. You're going to make it as someone who is figuring out what to do next. And more important, finding the faith, and I think the word faith is appropriate here, yeah. to walk up to your market, your world, your tribe, your community, and say, here. I made this. And this is why Brene's work so resonates with me, because the act of saying, here, I made this, is filled with issues of shame and vulnerability. Because if you say, I made this, you are opening the door for the other person to say, I don't like it, therefore I don't like you, therefore there's something wrong with you. How dare you show up and show me what you made? But our culture has shifted that the deniability that comes from being on the assembly line, isn't, it's going away. 
and now we have no choice if we want to matter but to step up and make something. And, and, and you do acknowledge this, you know, this kind of shift within a, within a matter of generations, I mean, you know, that is taking place in the middle of a lot of our working lives, where you started out with one idea, and now and that's completely broken. Um, but this is very stressful for human beings, right? I mean, biologically stressful. We, we know this. Even to talk about something like a, a post-geography world. I mean, you even put a finer point on that. What is it you say that, you know, it's, it, that the things that used to make us feel safe are, in fact, now risky? Um, and, I, I mean, I just want to put that out there, that uh, it's, an, it's a beautiful idea uh, that, 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 that that's what we all get to do now is stand up and say, I made this, here I am, and be an artist rather than a cog. Um, but it's, in human terms, very challenging, very, very exacting, and probably feels impossible to a lot of people. Exactly, Krista. You know, if you look at wild animals, wild animals succeed when they stay in the pack, when they keep their head down, when they're camouflaged. You rarely see an animal walk up to you and do a trick just so they can get applause. And... Human beings ended up evolving from that place to a place where we could live in a tribe, where we could be in a community. And on top of those tribes and communities, we layered the fact that we like to play with ideas. Hmm. But on top of this was this idea that we also needed to make a living, and we were in a race to make a living. So the Industrial Revolution paid this magical dividend, which is... By being part of an organization and by doing what we were told, which is inherently safe, we could get rich. I, I discovered um, a couple of weeks ago the story of Yuri Gargarin, the first guy in space. Yeah. And the thing that's extraordinary about it is he grew up in a mud hut with no windows and no electricity. So in the course of one lifetime, so in 30 years, someone goes from a mud hut with no electricity to orbiting the planet in a spaceship. <laughs> and that, for me, is the promise of the industrial age, which was we said to people whose parents or grandparents were poor, do this and we will make you rich. And it's safe, and school will support you, and society will support you. So that's what all of us have as our ancestral memory of what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, really suddenly, we replaced this with a new order, a new way of doing business where we're saying to people, guess what? Those ideas we used to play with are more important than ever. Mm -hmm. And that cog-like obedience that we taught you in second grade and fifth grade and tenth grade, the stuff that Mike Rose has written so eloquently yeah. about, that stuff we don't think is valuable anymore. And society is being really slow to realize that that shift is going on. Well, I mean, it's necessarily slow. I mean, just, you know, just last night I'm, I'm watching my 14-year-old son do his homework and he's memorizing things. And I'm so clear that what he's memorizing right there is kind of a waste of his time, you know? Like how a lot of what is filling his education um, doesn't have value. Now, I, I think that the things that have value have their way of finding, you know, will find their way to him and he'll find his way to them. But there is going to be this big lag as, as, our, inst you know, as our institutions catch up. I mean, I, I sort of sometimes think of it as, uh, say it this way, that, that in every discipline we can think of, whether it's education or 
business or how we structure workplaces or even government, you know, the churches, religious organizations, the old forms have stopped working, but we still really don't have any kind of picture of what the new forms will be. It's like we're creating them in real time. Yeah. I mean, my great-grandfather, before he lost everything in the crash of 1929, uh, was a pretty successful guy. And they actually asked him and his peers, what should school do? You guys are all the successful barons of industry. What should school do? And we built school to make those guys happy, to create the factory workers that they needed. Because school was being built, and they got to pick. But if we sat down with the successful people of today, our community leaders and our uh, corporate leaders and et cetera, and said, what should school do? None of them would say, let's make it so that people are more obedient and better at memorizing facts. But that's what we still do at school. And what we're seeing is that most people who are making an impact, the Sarah Joneses of the world or the Jacqueline Novogratzes of the world, they're doing it despite what they learned in school, not because of what they learned in school. And if I sit down with a bunch of seventh graders or or first graders and ask them to brainstorm or raise their hand or innovate or make something, they find it way easier than when I sit down with a bunch of college students. Because the college students are afraid of being wrong. Hmm. And this idea that we spent 15 years training people to be afraid of being wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. And to do it on your own, not collaboratively. Right. Don't look right. over and anyone's well, shoulder. <laughs> ex- exactly. Yeah. And, and so, you know, when, when a bunch of, of 10th or 11th graders hand in their homework and get marked down because they worked on it together, yeah. I'm like, what's the lesson there again? Yeah. So let me ask you this. If I say the word art to you, you know, who, who, who are artists? What, what is art that's being made out there in this, in this very expansive sense in which you're using the word? Um, you know, it's interesting to me. Like, I, I think one of the things you and I are circling around is that um, uh, all, of, a lot of these, all of our disciplines have been siloed in ways that, that are just so clearly wrong now. But again, we don't quite know how to, it's, it's, it's a very messy process of, of open, um, breaking down barriers. And so, so when I'm reading you, I'm wondering, uh, if a hundred years from now, people would read that that in in the twentieth century, even into the twenty first century, art was something that was done by specialized experts. That it was a fringe thing, right? That right. it was something of eccentrics, and um, and you went to museums to look at it. I'm wondering if they would just think how how crazy that is. So when I say to you, what is art? Who are the artists around you? What do you think of? What comes to mind? So I, so I grew up at the Albright Knox Art Museum in Buffalo, which mm. is a, a really wonderful contemporary art museum. And contemporary art means it's stuff that Mike Wallace hates. It's the things that anybody could do. It's not fine portraiture. It's a bunch of Brillo boxes. Uh, it's Marcel Duchamp. And, you know, Marcel Duchamp put a urinal into a Dadaist art exhibit, and everyone agreed that that was a work of art because it had something to say. Mm. The second guy who put in a urinal was a plumber. And it's, it's that distinction between having something to say versus repeating what was said that informs my definition of art. And I wish I had a better word because sometimes when people think of art, they think of Van Gogh. Yeah. But I'm saying that we can all agree that Beethoven was an artist and that Shakespeare was an artist or that Joseph Boys, who worked in felt and lard, was an artist. And it's not that hard to extend it to 
Yeah, well, so was Steve Jobs. Um, yeah, yeah. That when he did things, he was doing them with the right intent for the first time in a way that had an impact. So then I can expand that to anybody who's put uh, an iPhone app into the world that, that, that changes the way we interact with each other or the device. Or I can say, guess what? The guy, the, when, when Scott started Charity Water and created a different way to both raise money to help people in the underprivileged world have fresh water and actually deliver on that promise, that act was an act of art because mm -hmm. if it hadn't worked, it was going to fail because his structure was wrong and it wasn't resonating. Um, and we can also have art that's done by groups of people in a community where they count on each other to create something bigger than themselves. So when I was in Peru, um, I, I visited uh, this village of, of, of Aborigine people who had been there for a very long time who had come up with a different way to dye fabric. And it was unique to their village, and they had figured out how to do it in a way that was worth seeking out and that was worth noting that it was a better, riskier, interesting way to do something with wool. So, yeah, that's art, too. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy to keep track of what art is by what it's not, right? It's not following a manual, reading a dummy's book, looking for a map. It tends to be people who work with a compass instead, who have an understanding of true north and are willing to solve a problem in an interesting way. And so when I look at someone like Eve Klein, who was uh, an artist in the, in the late 50s and early 60s, when he did a work, he never did another work like it. He didn't say, oh, I could paint Starry Starry Night again and again and again and make a living. He said, how do I make an impact instead? And and I feel like that connection between it's like once you let this out of its box, that connection between impact and beauty, design. I mean, so so I'm just so aware of this kind of accumulation of interesting things like public interest design now, right? Yeah, you know, there's there are all these there are all these movements which are then are letting art and design out of its box, and then and then absolutely showing it as a connector and a driver. Um, in all kinds of endeavors that we would have, we think of as more practical. But we now need to add a, a big shift here, which is that if you're looking at our conversation through the industrialist's point of view, your next question is, but where is the mass? How do I reach everybody yeah. with a product that isn't average? Right. And so that shows that we're keeping score of the wrong thing. Uh, ben Graham, the great uh, stock investor has a quote where he said, you know, at the beginning, the market is a voting machine. So that the goal is to see how many people are going to vote for you, how many people are going to raise their hand and say, I like that. It's winning on, you know, some silly reality TV show. But in the long run, the market is a weighing machine. It's a scale of how much impact you had. And what this age we're living in is doing is it's dividing the mass market, which is basically dead now, into hundreds or thousands of micro-markets, little markets of interest. So you can't make a substantial impact on everyone anymore. It's almost impossible. Mm -hmm, right. But what you can do is go to the edges and go to the few people who care deeply and make a big impact there. And so, you know, if we look at just something like pop music, if the number one pop song today had been released with the numbers it had, 30 years ago, it wouldn't have made the Billboard 100. Mm. That, 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 that pop music, pop books, pop everything 
isn't what it used to be because we're, it, we're not one monolithic culture anymore because there isn't one giant form of media anymore. Instead, we've permitted people to go into their own bubble to find people like themselves, to listen to what they want to listen to and talk about what they want to talk about. And industrialists hate this because <laughs> industrialists want to sell you any color car you want as long as it's black because it's cheaper to only make one color. It's cheaper to make average stuff for average people. But in every economy, even economies where people make 5 or $10 a day, when you give people a choice, they take it. And, and so it's true that the, the old model of industrialism hates it. <clears throat> and also, I think, I think in general cultural discourse, when you hear this being described as you've described it, that everybody's off in their own corner with people like them, it's said that way as a negative, right? As something that, in fact, is alienating us from each other. And, and I, I suspect that you, you wouldn't say that that's not possible, but I think what's really empowering in your work is how you also point at that as a new kind of choice, um, well, as a liberation from the need to, to do something in a mass way, as a choice to, to, um, to, be, to be really focused on how you want to make an impact and what matters. And as you say, do that with people who want to do that with depth and engagement. And I don't think many people are out there with this message. Well, I think that people who want to make a difference often have a choice. The, the one method of doing it is I want everyone to agree with me. I will demonize the outliers. It's me against them. Mm -hmm. um, and history has a lot of folks who have done that, and political discourse is filled with it. But the other form of leadership is to find people who are inclined to agree with you and to lead them, to amplify their best desires and figure out how to take them further. And if you're in a monolithic culture, it's harder to do that mm -hmm. because the people who disagree with you are busy yelling at you all the time. But as we get into this reimagination of a tribal culture, what we're seeing is that in almost every sector, every passion, every interest that you can think of, people are standing up and saying, follow me. They're not wasting their time dragging down the non-believers. As, as the f uh, famous YouTube video says, shun the non-believers. You don't have to interact with them. It's about finding the people who are living the life you're living and amplifying their dreams and, and taking them further. Now, I, I need to, to put a little footnote here, which is, um, you know, Jacqueline Novogratz talks a lot about dignity. She's the head of the Acumen Fund. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's such an important concept because what industrialists have done since the beginning is stripped our dignity away, that they do not want their employees to have dignity because that gives them power. It means you see that person. You must imagine yourself in that person's shoes. And if you're in a race to the bottom, pinching every penny, trying to gain market share by being cheaper, it's easier to not do that, right? And when you apply the industrial model to charity, the same thing is true. We say, well, you're a problem to be solved. We've created a pile of money here. And that doesn't give the recipient dignity. Mm -hmm. It just gives them a bag of rice. Going forward, the only way to engage at the level that we're talking about here, at the human level, at the level of art, is to recognize that the person you're dealing with is a person, not a stand-in for a robot, 
not someone who's working for $7 an hour, not someone who's just going to take your bag of rice and go away, but someone you will dance with, someone that you will work with so that you can change each other by seeing each other. Mm. And that is a, a futuristic step backwards, right? That what we've been able to do is say, this is what human beings were like at their best in 1600 or 1750. We can do that now at even more scale because it's possible to bring these ideas and bring these exchanges to so many billions of people. And I want to I want to bring in that the word tribes that you use because that's another way you're using a word that we associate with something primitive, right? That we think that we thought modernity was about outgrowing, right? Um, right? And you, but you are you are actually really affirming that um, it's not you know identity doesn't matter less; it matters as much or more in this world of of just un, unprecedented pluralism. But you're saying that now it's not just a matter of blood uh, and lineage that are, that's given to you. It's, um, it's something we create and choose. We choose who and what we belong to. It's not just about survival. It's about connection and flourishing. So, you know, in, in the desert or the jungle, the tribe was defined by geography alone, mm-hmm. that you were in the tribe based on where you were born. And then if we fast forward to, I don't know, Mark Twain, Mark Twain would show up in a city and a thousand people would come to hear him speak. And everyone who came was in his tribe. Mm. They were in the tribe of, you know, slightly satirical, slightly jaundiced people who were also intellectuals who could engage with him. And he had never met them before, but within minutes, they were part of a, a, a congruent group who understood each other. And so if we fast forward to today, you can take someone who hangs out in the East Village of Manhattan who has 27 tattoos. They go to Amsterdam. They can find someone in Amsterdam who talks their language and acts like them because they've chosen the same set of things that excite them and that they believe in. And we divide tribes as small a group as we want. But what the Internet has done is meant that we don't have to get on a plane anymore to meet strangers who are like us, that the Linux operating system, which is on a billion computers around the world, was written by a group of strangers who have never met who are part of the same tribe. Wikipedia is edited by 5,000 people who meet once a year who all talk the same way and think the same way and have the same goals, even though they live in different countries. And so the challenge of our future is to say, are we going to connect and amplify positive tribes Mm -hmm. that want to make things better for all of us, or are we going to degrade to warring tribes that are willing to bring other groups down just so they can get ahead? right. Um, so uh, let's talk about marketing, um, which is something that you are associated with and wise about. Um, you're associated as a, again, a kind of a phenomenal success, um, and you write a lot about it. I would say, again, in popular imagination, um, you know, marketing would be the worst kind of you know would be would be the 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 place we'd point at for um something exploitative that that actually panders to the lowest common denominator or tries to make us all alike in in unthinking ways um 
and certainly that's going to be a dynamic if you this world you just you just this picture you just painted of the world is going to be a dynamic of how some of this goes or in terms of what we what we turn our tribes into or what we're producing from our tribes yeah this is very risky because Sunday mornings when I'm sitting in my driveway unable to get out of my car because I'm listening to you talk <laughs> and now the word marketing comes up it, we just lost one third of all the people who are listening well, because if right. if people think that marketing and advertising are the same thing they're correct uh -huh. in that it's not really something that's worth a lot of your time but what I've been working my whole life working life to do is help people redefine marketing as the work an organization or a person does when they tell a story that resonates with us. And that marketing isn't advertising. Marketing is the product we make, the service we offer, the life we live. Hmm. And that no one ever knows the truth about anyone else. But what we notice about other people and what we notice about what organizations do, that's marketing. If it's noticed, it's marketing. So the choice is, do we seek to push to the world an idea that doesn't hold up to scrutiny, that isn't true, that isn't valid, but we can trick people into buying from us. That's one sort of negative way to approach marketing. Or do we build an organization and build a life and build a career where if someone knew the truth, they'd want to work with us? And that's marketing too. And so the question as you go forward is, will you choose this ethical marketing that doesn't involve yelling at people, networking your way to the top, spamming people, and lying, right? But instead involves weaving a story and weaving a tribe and weaving a network that means something, doing work that matters. Because now everyone has their own TV network. Everyone has their own radio right, station. Right, right. Everyone has their own printing press. So what are you going to put on it? What are you going to put out to the world? Because if we're moving beyond you work for me and you do what I say to a world where I say, here, here's a microphone, speak up. Here, here's a connection to the Internet, touch who you want, we're going to notice what you do. And so whether or not you choose to be a marketer, you are one. I mean, here's something from your, I get your blog, your daily blog, I get it as, as an email. And, you know, here, for example is, I think, something that just um, epitomizes the, the, the different way you're inviting people to come at this word in terms of life and work. So it's uh, something you wrote, four questions worth answering. Okay, So, I mean, I have started to really ponder these in terms of my own little enterprise, my own little public radio show. Four questions worth answering. Who is your next customer? And you said you don't mean that you mean that conceptually, their outlook, hopes, dreams, needs, and wants. What is the story he told about himself before he met you? How do you encounter him in a way that he trusts the story you want to tell him about what you have to offer? What changes are you trying to make in him, his life, his story? And then you wrote, start with this before you spend time on tactics, technology, scalability. I think that's really refreshing. <laughs> there, there used to be... Um parking meters in New York City that took quarters. And that meant, um, that, my stomach made a noise, so I'll say it again. Uh, there used to be parking meters in New York City that, that took quarters. And, and what that meant was that quarters were worth more than 25 cents. And, and one day I was parking on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and a guy comes up to me who, from all physical appearances, was, use your word, hobo, bum, uh, person of, uh, who homeless, needed help. Um, but generally, on, even on the streets of New York, 
it's very difficult to make a living by panhandling um, because most people tell themselves the story that they're not going to interact with a stranger, they're not going to give that stranger money, and it's not a useful way uh, to help someone. Well, this gentleman came out to me and he said, excuse me, do you have a dollar for four quarters? Which is precisely the opposite of the question <laughs> that people always ask you. Right. And I was taken aback because actually I needed four quarters and was happy to pay $2 for four quarters in that moment. So I did the transaction with him. And then he said, excuse me, do you have a quarter? And the, bril the brilliance of the question, of course, is, yeah, he knew I had a quarter. He had just given it to me. And that we had huh. a transaction huh. that had helped me. So now it was obvious I was going to give him a quarter. In fact, I gave him three because I wanted to reciprocate. And what's magical about this story is that he understood that the worldview, the story of the typical person on the street of New York is not, I wish I could find someone I could give a dollar to. <laughs> right? And, and, and so if you as a marketer, in using my term for marketing, are going into the world trying to get every single person to do business with you, you're going to make a mistake because they're not going to be, most people don't have the mindset that they want, that they've been looking for you. The second thing that goes on is, are you trying to change their mindset? Because it turns out if you need to change people's mindset, which is something, for example, politicians do because they need a majority, you don't do that easily. And you certainly don't do it by stating the facts. You do it by understanding the mindset they had before they even showed up. Mm. And then telling them a story that resonated with their existing worldview, their existing mindset, and then that story is the story that starts to change the way they view the world. And the people who are making change and the people you've interviewed through the years, that's what they have in common. That they don't stand up and say, here is a recitation of things that are true, therefore you must agree with me. Mm -hmm. What they have figured out how to do is understand the mindset of the person before they even met them and then put a story into the world that resonates enough to start changing that mindset. I mean, you, you even talk about things like, you know, it, it's very hopeful what you write and in, in even how you describe what, what succeeds, what can succeed. I think maybe even better than that, what endures. You know, the winning strategy of giving customers a platform to be their best selves Again, that's a really different concept from how we usually think about what we can be successful in offering, you know, in, in any sphere. And how well, do you know, you know that, we, Seth? Go ahead. Do you know that? Is that true? Is that really true? I mean, it's like you want it to be true. How do you know that's true? Well, the reason I know it's true is because all I do for a living is notice things. Uh-huh. And there's one view of the world called the Walmart view that says that what people want, what all people want, is as much stuff as possible for as cheap a price as possible. And if you look at the world through that lens, and there are plenty of people who do, you can come up with a strategy to achieve that. And that's Black Friday sales, and that's self-storage units, and that's somebody who's happy to push you to buy something you don't need because the object of the game is for them to have more stuff. And that's a world based on scarcity. 
I don't have enough stuff. How do I get more stuff? There's not enough shelf space. How do I get more shelf space for my my stuff, et cetera? There's a different view, and we see it in so many places, but it doesn't get a lot of press, which is the view not based on scarcity but based on abundance, that even in communities, and I've been to communities in Kenya and in India and other places where people struggle to have even a a, a shell of a lifestyle that we would expect— where people value far more highly than more stuff is more meaning, more connection. That in an, in an abundance economy, we, the thing we don't have enough of is we don't have enough um, connection, we're lonely, and we don't have enough time. And if people can offer us connection and meaning and a place where we can be our best selves, yes, we will seek that out. No, it probably doesn't help you build a big, profitable public company, but yes, it helps you make a better difference to the community that you've chosen to live in. Yeah, and I mean, you know, as someone who's in the world of media where what is big, you know, what gets the really big numbers, and this is true in public media, as it, it really as much as commercial media, is entertainment. Um, and so... I just, it's, for me, it's been important to hear you saying things like this, you know, to hear you saying things like number one in a small market is way more interesting, more fruitful and fun than being number three in a large market. And I mean, I think of that in terms of who's listening and what are they getting out of it? Yeah, compare the Beverly Hillbillies to Star Trek. You know, the Beverly Hillbillies, (laughs) even in the heart of the industrial age, were a ratings success. They were at the top of the ratings, and they got canceled. And no one other than me right now ever talks about the Beverly Hillbillies. Whereas Star Trek got canceled for having low ratings, and not only did it change the face of entertainment, it literally changed the face of technology and the way we live in our world. I mean, the iPhone is nothing but a, a, a Star Trek communicator. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so... And I'm still missing question, a lot of those characters. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, for someone in your shoes, the magic is this that you're back to the weighing machine versus the voting machine. You will never have better ratings than the Jersey Shore. But that's not what the purpose is. It's not what the point is. It's not why we do our work. What works is, does it matter? And is it possible to make a living doing something that matters? And the answer is yes. Is it possible to make the maximum amount of money? Probably not. Mm-hmm. But that's playing by a different set of rules. That what the internet is saying to us is you don't need a building and you don't need an FCC license and you don't need 10,000 employees. So when I strip those away and I get to the nub of what I can be and what I can do, it turns out it's not that expensive for me to put my art in the world. So I can make more mistakes. I can take bigger risks and I can make a bigger impact. Not to a lot of people. Like, I'm thrilled that almost everyone I meet has no idea who I am and what I do. Because I don't want lots of people showing up and saying, I read this, I read this, I read this, can I have your autograph? That's not the point. The point is, will someone come up to me and say, based on what I learned from you, I taught 10 other people to do this and we made something that mattered. Yeah. And you, don't, you can't accomplish that if you're trying for ratings on the scale of the Beverly Hillbillies. So is that true that you you are not recognized? I mean, you're saying that personally. 
Do you, do yes. You, yeah. Right. So, so this is this funny phenomenon of, you know, you and, I don't know, somebody like Brene Brown, it's true as well, Sarah Kay, some of the people we know. It's like, mm, what, it's this phenomenon of amazing things that are just under the cultural radar. Um, I mean, I, I don't, yeah. Um, and... Yet, the irony there is, I mean, you, for example, or Brene Brown with her, how many millions of people have watched her TED Talks, it's very, like, it's the niche, you know, it'd be, it'd be, it would be called a niche, but these, these niches are huge, some of them, yeah, I some of them, I and need they're to, powerful. I need to interrupt you, I yeah. need to interrupt you, because yeah. you're, you're falling into the same trap, which is, there is no such thing as cultural radar anymore. There's cultural radars. Right. Okay. That the New York the New York Times bestseller list is stupid, and they should stop publishing it because it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> okay, but there it is. Right. Because it's actually right. the That's collection. It's a uh-huh. collection of one hundred bestseller lists all mushed together. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. I, that if you look at the list of the most popular TED talks, it's a silly list because very few people have seen all of them. Uh-huh. So what you're seeing is twenty bestseller lists all mushed together. And if we're going to say I'm not a success unless I'm on that bestseller list or this bestseller list or I get that big in advance or I have these sorts of ratings, you're playing the game of the industrialist Mm -hmm. because the industrialist says I don't care about people. I care about mass. Whereas the other way to think about it is how few people can I influence and still be able to do this tomorrow? Because if we can influence just enough people to keep getting the privilege to do it, then tomorrow there'll be even more people because we're doing something genuine that connects as opposed to doing something fake that's entertainment. So how do you – you must have people come to you who say – well, you know, let's just say this. There there are a lot of great things that happen which don't – get recognition, don't sell, right? Books that are written that don't get published. Maybe that's not such an issue anymore. I mean, you, you have this idea, and I share this, that everyone, you know, that, that, that we all have something, right? We have, we, that we are all worthy and valuable and that, that, that there's something like a talent or a passion or a calling, but the truth is that these things get drummed out of many of us in different ways. And also that your passion might, might not be your talent, um, and also that every good every idea is not a good idea. So how do you advise people to be discerning on this? And that's another word you use that's really important to me, discernment. Um, and I don't think it's a word we use that much in connection with something like the internet. But you know how do you how do you help people think about where to start and and how to be wise? Well, let me weave together two uh, people in my answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one is Robert Irwin who is a little-known conceptual artist from the 1960s and 70s. And he talked a lot about learning how to see, um, that art is the act of making something where you forget the name of what you're seeing. Mm. Um, And what we see among everybody who is managing to do this kind of work is that they've noticed things. They've learned how to see the difference between good and bad, that Clive Davis understood how to listen to a record and say, my kind of listener is going to like this kind of record. And the only way you get that discernment is by practicing, is by saying, when I pick this, am I right? When I put this in the world, did it resonate with the people I was trying to reach? And then, so then we get to the 10,000 hours and the whole notion that if you practice noticing enough, 
you'll get good at it. And that means you're not good at the beginning necessarily and you'll fail. Right. The mm-hmm. only people who are good at the beginning are lucky. Um, you you, <laughs> you, you, can't, you yeah. can't claim that it's a skill yeah. that you can see and other people can't see, that okay. you got lucky in that you started with a set of assumptions that happened to resonate with the marketplace, mm-hmm. but you're not smarter than the rest of us. You just Someone had to start in the right place and you did. Yeah. But the second part that's so critical here is the Oprah Winfrey problem, which is that every writer who wanted to make an impact 15 years ago dreamed that Oprah would pick them. Right. And, and so in a media-saturated world, we want to get picked. So like you, every day, people show up to me and say, pick me, put me on your blog. If you would just talk about me, then my art will reach everyone I want to reach. But if we distinguish that from Darwin, you know, the, the, the first lizard that crawled out of the mud and started walking on legs didn't say uh, to the, the media, please pick me so that more four walking lizards could come along. That's not the way it worked. It's bottom up. Yeah. So what I say to people is I'm not in charge of what's good. I don't get to pick what's a purple cow, what's remarkable, anything. The, the world is. The bottom is. Everybody, I'm on the bottom too. Everyone is. So tell 10 people. There are 10 people who trust you enough to listen. And if you tell your thing to 10 people, if you send your ebook to 10 people, if you do your sermon to 10 people or show your product to 10 people, and none of them want to tell their friends and none of them are changed, then you failed, that you didn't really understand what was good. But if some of them tell their friends, then they'll tell their friends, and that's how ideas spread. So it's this 10 at a time, 10 by 10 by 10. How do you put an idea in the world that resonates enough with people if they trust you enough to hear it, that then it can go to the next step and the next step? So if I look at someone like Shepard Ferry, who has probably the most successful fine artist of the century so far, Shepard put his work on walls. And he said, here, take it. I made this. He got arrested 30 times sharing his work. That's how much he cared about the art he was making. And then over 10 years, he becomes an overnight success. Over 10 or 15 years, suddenly the iconography starts to resonate with people, and it helps elect a president. And this process didn't happen because he was anointed, because some art critic said, Shepard Fairey is important. It happened because people told people, collectors told collectors, and over time, the work resonated with more and more people. That time is a big piece of it, isn't it? It's another kind of illusion that we have. This whole notion of overnight ex- no, overnight success is such a fallacy, but we still think that that's how things should work, or think that things have worked that way. Right, and and part of it comes from the, again the industrial mindset, because when someone in power snatches you from the assembly line and makes you a vice president, mm-hmm. that makes a great movie, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's an easy way to dream of it. We don't generally want to applaud the person who's rejected, 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 finds a little bit and repeats the process over and over again. But that's the way evolution works. That's the way that life works. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't make a, a nice story for the media. It doesn't make a clever daydream that success is always right around the corner. But in fact, it's so empowering because what it means is it doesn't matter who you know. It doesn't matter if you get lucky and get picked. What matters is you now, if you have an internet connection to your device, you can reach six billion people if they choose to listen to you. 
and they will choose some, will choose to listen to you if you do something worth listening to. Let me ask you in, about this word discernment and just in terms of you, how you use technology, because I think um, in this as in everything else, you know, you kind of, you uh, march to the beat of your own drummer, right? So you you do, you've written over 4,000 blog posts. Um, you feed your work to Twitter, but you're actually not really on Twitter, right? I mean, you right. haven't taken that leap. You're, you're, you don't follow anyone, you're, but your 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 writing goes into this Twitter account. You write books that rise to the top of the Amazon bestseller list without doing anything that the whole world thinks you have to do to sell a book. It's not just not getting picked by Oprah, but you don't do book tours, you don't do interviews. So, how you know what have you learned as you've worked with this thing called technology these years? How have you learned how to figure out what to throw yourself at and what to resist? Well, I'm glad you said the word resist. We've managed to make it a long time without bringing up Steve Pressfield and the resistance or the lizard brain and the desire to hide. That what every artist wrestles with all day long is that voice in the back of their head that says, uh-oh, you've gone too far. Better not show this to anyone. Mm -hmm. Writer's block, it turns out, was invented in 1942. There was no term for it. No <laughs> one had it. And we invented writer's block um, because suddenly writing had import. And suddenly writing is something you could do for a living as opposed to just a way of expressing yourself. And every time we get face-to-face -face with this notion that we have to put ourselves out there, we want to hide. What I do with technology is this. I say to myself, um, is this going to help me hide? Is it going to keep me busy for two or three or four hours a day so that I could go home at the end of the day and say, I'm exhausted, but realize mm. that I didn't do anything that was really worth it, that tending the crops of Facebook feels like real work for an organization that has five or 10 or 50,000 Facebook followers, but it doesn't carry any risk and it doesn't matter. So what I've tried to do is strip away the things in my life that would give me a place to hide. So I don't write mm -hmm. the sequel. I didn't write the Permission Marketing Handbook or Purple Cow Part 2. I don't have employees, so that way I don't have meetings. Um, I don't spend time on Facebook and Twitter because that would be a huge suck of my time, and I could deny um, that I was wasting time because everyone does it. Mm -hmm. And so the the challenge for me with technology is, is this leveraging me in a way that makes me uncomfortable, that puts me in a spot where I have to dig deeper to do the work that I'll be proud of? And so that's if a that, good, if, that, that's if your answer does, is yes, okay, so your answer, if it's, if it, if it's harder, if, what did you say, if it's challenging, if it puts you in right, a... Right, if it puts me, if the leverage makes yeah. it harder yeah. for me to do that thing I'm defining as art, then I want to do it. Okay. Right? Yeah. And, and so, the, you know, the Kickstarter pr project I did... I did it because it was interesting, not because it was a financially important thing. To raise thing. money for the Icarus Deception? Is that right. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't to raise money. It was to raise a tribe, to get 4,500 4, people to say, we are not, we haven't read it yet, but we trust you. Go write it. Mm. Now, those are pretty high stakes, right? But And it meant I didn't have any excuses left. I couldn't say, well, my editor wouldn't let me do it or my publisher wouldn't let me do it because they weren't a factor. It meant that these people trusted me and gave me a tool that could bring it straight to them. That raises the stakes. And this idea of raising the stakes with our art 
regardless of how small the stakes are when we start, is how we get on the path. One example I like to give is the difference between Bob Dylan and, and the monkeys. So Bob Dylan got, got booed off stage when he went electric, and he got booed off stage when he switched to gospel, and he got booed off stage again after that. So over the course of a 50-year career, this guy gets booed off stage every 10 or 15 years. The monkeys have never been booed off stage. <laughs> And the difference is that Bob Dylan is still relevant, and people still pay money to hear Bob Dylan play new music. And the Monkees, when they get together, are an oldies act in Las Vegas. And that's because they're an echo of their art. They're not making new art. Yeah, I mean, one of the points you make um, about this new world we inhabit and the the need and also the opportunity for each of us to be artists is that... Uh, it's precisely when you are doing something that no one has done before that you are not going to get the loudest applause, right? That you will not get picked. And that that then requires us to to develop some different kinds of internal resources, right? And how do we internally uh, have faith in what we care yeah, about? Exactly, and it, and that's where the discernment comes. Mm-hmm. You know, so. When I, when I give a talk, at the end, you'll say, are there any questions? And the only people who are raising their hand are raising their hand because they think they have a question the, the group wants to hear. They think that they have something to contribute. Now, what's fascinating about it is five minutes after we're done, everyone has a question, right? Right, because, right, right. Because now it's safe to ask your question because you're not going to be judged on the question that you're going to ask. But the people who do ask a question have demonstrated to themselves that they have good enough judgment to be able to put something into the world that hasn't been said before. That's what makes it a good question. And that practice is something that we should learn and we should teach our kids and we should teach our colleagues how to do it. And yet the industrial order doesn't want us to do that. And so there's the friction. There's where the pain comes in. And we, we end up with this distinction between propaganda and mythology. And I, I think it's worth going into because it, mm-hmm. it goes so deeply into who and what we believe. Propaganda is what we've been living with for a really long time. And it's when people in power tell us a story that helps them get what they want. And we don't like propaganda, but we buy into it all the time. Mythology has been around for thousands of years. And it's stories about gods. But in fact, they're stories about people yeah. that all mythology that resonates, that's held up through the years, exists because it's about our best self. It's about what we are capable of becoming. And so I think this, this idea of hubris becomes critically important because we were all raised, particularly women, to avoid hubris, yeah. to not speak up too much, to not fly too close to the sun because we'll get what's coming to us. And so that's where writer's block comes from because we don't naturally want to expose ourselves to someone saying, how dare you? What right do you have to say that? Mm-hmm. How can you speak up? Or, or even what, to be silent about it, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Don't. That when you see an injustice, if you see an injustice, it takes hubris to stand up and say, stop that. Stop hitting that kid. Mm. Stop leaving this group alone when they need our help. And it's so easy for the group to shout you down. Mm-hmm. But now... Remember, the group is horizontal. It's not geographically based anymore. 
Now we have the chance to find people who agree with us to stand up and lead them. And that's where hubris is not only not to be avoided, not only is it a that's, that's where hubris is not a bad thing. Hubris is a good thing. That what we need are people who will stand up with the support of their peers and their tribe and say, we should do this. I made this. You can make this too. And it's the opposite of what the industrialists taught us through their propaganda. And it goes back to the mythology that we could be like the gods, that we could stand up and do what is right. And there's this great Japanese term I love, which is called kamiwaza. Yeah. And kamiwaza is very difficult to translate. I've asked 100 Japanese people, and all of them told me different versions of the same thing, which is godlike. We don't have a word for it. But if you see a cheetah running in a slow-motion video, it's kamiwaza. If you designed a cheetah to run fast, this is how you would do it, right? Mm. And so to, to write or to speak or to invent or to lead with kamiwaza means to do it without fear of hubris, to do it as the gods would do it, to do it completely and with the right intent. And what we're seeing, whether it's George Nakashima making a coffee table or Amanda F. Palmer making a record album, is that they're doing it with kamiwaza. They're doing it without reservation. They're doing it without holding back. And that's the only thing the rest of us are going to connect with. We only want to connect with genuine humanity it's just not interesting to seek out the banal anymore. There's too much of it. Um, the 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 myth of Icarus is is one that you've been using that you've been thinking about a lot lately and and bringing into your work. So so and I think you you know you've been kind of talking about what that holds for you, but explicitly say you know what you've called it the Icarus deception. So what what does that mean to you? So if you and I had been sitting around um, just after the Dark Ages and heard the story of Icarus, what we would have heard is this. Um, that Daedalus said to his son two things. One, uh, put these wings on, uh, but don't fly too close to the sun because it's too hot up there and the wax will melt. But more important, son, do not fly too low. Do not fly too close to the sea because the mist and the water will weigh down the wings and you will surely perish. And that was the story until Andrew Carnegie and the rest of the industrialists made it really clear that it was a bad idea. And they left out the part about don't fly too low. And that's not mm. what we were taught. And the books changed. And suddenly the Icarus story that we all grew up with is don't fly too high. Avoid hubris. And for me, the, the most important message that I've come to after thinking about this for so many years is we are flying too low. We built this universe, this technology, these connections, this society, and all we can do with it is make junk. All we can do with it is put on stupid entertainments. I'm not buying it. I think we are capable of being bigger than that. I think we're capable of going beyond division and into connection. I think we're capable of dealing with the shame that comes from vulnerability and opening ourselves to what the audience wants to tell us. And so I go back to all the things that my late mom taught me. And I think that this society now has said to people, wherever they live, whether they're making $20 an hour or $10 an hour or $1,000 an hour, is they're saying, we can have more faith. We can have more faith in community and charity and innovation and dignity and education. And, you know, I, I gave this talk a couple weeks ago to some educators, and a woman in her 50s raised her hand, and she said, well, I work at a community college, and the, we don't 
we have a different problem. Our problem is we have to let in everybody. And let me tell you something, mister, she said. Those people can't make art. Mm. And I started to cry. Because here was someone who was trusted to elevate and to teach and to inspire. And she had become so beaten down that in a public setting, she turned to me and she said, those people can't make art. And I just don't believe it. Hmm. Well, in the radio show, that may be your last word. I want to keep talking for a couple more minutes. Okay. Um, I'm still, I'm here all day. Great. If you, okay. If you <laughs> um, it's hard to, it's hard to move past that. Um, I think it may be important for people to know that Seth Godin, you know, master of all things digital, um, that you also still get wounded. For example, you've told stories by, you know, the, the one tweet out of 20 or 100, which, uh, which is negative, right? That you don't, you don't stop being immune to this stuff just because you can put it into perspective. Well, let me tell you a little bit about uh, negative feedback if you let it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I gave, uh, it took me nine months of preparation to give a speech for the first time to a group of 12,000 people, which is the, pretty much the biggest group I What I, was I that usually, group? What was 12,000 people? Yeah, I don't want to... Oh, okay, all right. So I give this speech, and I've never given it before, and I'm probably never going to give it again. And it's really successful. 12,000 people is a lot of people to have in a big uh, hockey auditorium. And I'm on a high because now, you know, I'm off duty and I'm in the car headed back to the airport. And just for kicks, I go onto Twitter and I search the, uh, the talk. Well, if there's that many people in the room, you can bet a whole bunch of people are tweeting. And in fact, there were probably 120, 100 tweets there. And almost every one of them was filled with nice work. And one of them just completely missed the point and was really negative about what I had done. And you can imagine what I did. The next seven hours were just black because I was beating myself up about the fact that I hadn't reached everyone mm. and that the, the underlying shame that we all deal with came to the fore. What right did I have to stand up? I mean, mm. I'm making all this stuff up. It's not like I'm yeah. in charge of anything. How dare I stand up in front of all these people and pretend I know how to inspire or talk to them. Right, it's that impulse again that this, this is the one person who saw that I'm a fake, right? That we all, right. yeah. And, and so what I realized, this was three years ago, what I realized was um, he didn't get anything out of me reading his comment, and I certainly didn't. And then I thought about you know, the reviews on Amazon as well, and I've never once met an author who said to me, you know, I read all the one-star reviews in my last book, <laughs> and I thought really deeply about them, and my next book is much better as yeah. a result. This is not true. Yeah. And so th- I don't have comments on my blog for the same reason, because it wasn't making the work better. It was just feeding me in the wrong way. It was undoing my vulnerability. When an anonymous person can say a negative word that doesn't make your work better, then what you've done is reminded yourself not to be vulnerable. What you've done is said to yourself, I shouldn't even open myself to anything. So what I've done is I've said, I need to not worry about this, and I'm not a strong enough person. I don't, know, I don't want to be a strong enough person who can hear this and ignore it. So I just don't bathe in it. Mm-hmm. I don't read what anyone says about me on Twitter. I don't look at my reviews on Amazon, not the good ones and not the bad ones. You can't have it both ways. And as a result, I'm relying on two things. 
my discernment of the world as it is, and the feedback of trusted non-anonymous people who are on the same journey I'm on. And I'm unbelievably open to what they have to say. And I've learned so much from their feedback. Mm. But I'm not going to give in to the resistance. I'm not going to say I'm going to gain uh, writer's block and insulation by exposing myself to people who remind me that they don't like me. I know there are people who don't like me. Starting in high school, there have been people who don't like me. That's okay now. And that's so important to be able to say out loud. Because in the post-industrial age, not only can't you please everyone, you shouldn't even try. Because Mm -hmm. if you do something that pleases everyone, you will not matter to anyone. And that's why it's okay there are people who don't think that the Dalai Lama does a good job. Because it's not his job to be the most popular person on earth. It's his job to do work that matters to some. And this is the the, the horrible double-edged sword of the internet, which is we can expose ourselves to so much that makes things better, but if we choose, we can also expose ourselves to such um, enmity, to such a, a, a morass, a swamp of negative feedback that we persuade ourselves not to go near it ever again. And I think we can do better than that. You know, you, in one of your blogs, made this really, I just thought this was so uh, stunning and helpful, this analogy between the Milgram experiment, which was this famous experiment where people were giving fake shocks, but they didn't know that they were fake, to to people to to get them to do, to follow instructions. And... uh, and you said that the internet has become a giant version of this, it's so that um, it's like a switch that you've given people, and they can shock you whenever they choose. They can disrupt your day, cloud your horizons, and generally make you feel like a failure. I mean, I think that's an important way for us to register uh, the power of this, both in terms of what it does to us and get some perspective on that, but also the power it gives us to send that email or write that comment. Yes. And the thing that's interesting, in all the follow-ups to Milgram, no one has said it felt great to shock those people or at least think I was shocking those people. I wish I could do it again. Mm-hmm. And it hurts the person who, who writes the one-star review. It hurts the person who dumps on us. Maybe not in the short run, but over time because it hardens us. So, yes, the Internet is this giant Milgram experiment but with two switches. One switch is whenever you feel like it, you can give anyone you want a shock if they're open to receiving it. But the other switch says, whenever you feel like it, you can give someone support or a connection or you can take action based on what they said if they're open to it. And the people who I meet who do the second thing say their life is so much better because of it, because they can reach out to somebody who needed some support, because they can, you know, say, yeah, I could pirate this record, but I'm going to buy it for three bucks from the artist directly instead. The three bucks matters a little, but it matters even more that you said, I care enough about your music that I want you to make more of it. Yeah. You know, a, very, a, 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 big, a big idea that I think is, is, is in a lot of what we're talking about, a lot of what you write about, is, is how change happens, how social change happens, and how that is changing in this post-industrial age, right? Because the idea, an idea that we have... And this comes up with me when I talk to people and they ask me, you know, where's the movement? Where's the leader, right? We have this idea that we needed that we need a movement and a leader. 
but in as you're describing it, in this world we inhabit now, it's more true than ever, and I think it's always been true that change comes from the margins. Um, but that 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 those that that marginalize, you know, what is what is happening out there on the fringes um, can be amplified in a new way as well and intensified. The, you know, where did um, where did the Arab Spring come from? It came from the same place that bottled water came from. In that there wasn't one person who was in charge yeah. who said, "Everyone follow me, charge." What happened was someone did something and it was amplified enough that other people, some other people, felt like they could do something too. And so when a fruit seller takes a horrible action that inspires just a few people to do something as well, it starts to spread. And the same thing happened with people carrying bottles of bottled water around. They were the ones who were spreading the idea, Mm. not an ad campaign. Or how is it that gas mileage has gone up so much in so many communities. It's not because of government regulation. It's because the Prius had a very distinctive shape. And so when you saw the first one driving around your neighborhood, you noted it. Mm. But when you saw 10 of them driving around your neighborhood, suddenly it felt safe to go ahead and do something like this. Not in every neighborhood, not in the neighborhoods of Chevy Novas and Hummers, but in the neighborhood maybe where you live, suddenly it felt like this was an okay thing to do. And so tribal change, the change that happens when people in sync start moving forward in baby steps. You know, it's really easy to lionize uh, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. What a great man and what a heroic thing he did. But he could never, ever have done it if it hadn't been for 10,000 individuals who were each taking little steps. Rosa Parks did not invent the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement was ready when Rosa Parks was there. And the same thing is true with so many other changes that go on in our community that we say to ourselves, we used to say to ourselves, why should I bother doing something? I'm all by myself. It won't matter. But now that all of us can be amplified if we choose, what you do and what you do in public in particular has an echo effect. And when those echoes get in sync, and the Internet is a great synchronization machine, They get louder and louder and louder until they make real and positive change. So, you know, a final thing I just want to name is something just wonderful that you say again and again that we are all weird. And and again, you're pointing at something that that manifests itself in so many ways, but we don't necessarily say. It's kind of the demise of normal, which is such a relief. Um. And I wonder, maybe in that regard, or, or maybe in other ways, you know, you're you're also raising children in this in this time. So how does that? How does parenting? How do your kids who are growing up in this post-industrial, post-geography world, you know, how do they continue to feed and inform your sense of what this means and and what's at stake and what's possible? You know, if you, if you spend time with, with technically connected 15-year-olds, you're going to discover a bunch of things. First of all, many of them don't watch any television whatsoever, but they consume more video it's than true. ever before. Yeah. Um, and, and most of them are not concerned whatsoever about Dunbar's number and this notion that they can only have 150 friends and family or else their brain melts. Um, they have 1,000 people that they're connected with or 5,000 people, and they are living a life out loud. And some people are responding to that by saying, I don't care. 
I'll put up pictures of me drinking out of a funnel, and I will, you know, act out because it's in the world. I'm just going to do it, and that's fine. And others, and I'm very lucky to live with two of them, are saying, wow, what a chance for me to contribute to this circle and to organize to this circle, that here's a stage, and I'm not going to put on a play, but I am going to organize something, whether it's you know helping to build something with Habitat for Humanity or putting a, a technical innovation into the world. And so as parents, we're often pushed to make this choice. And the choice is keep your kids out of the connection world mm-hmm. and isolate them and make sure they're, quote, safe, unquote, or put your kids into the world and, you know, all hell will break loose. Those are the things that they talk about at the PTA meeting. And I don't think that's the choice. I think the choice is everyone is in the world now. Everyone is connected. You cannot keep your 12-year-old from hearing profanity. You know, get over it. But given that they're in the world, what trail are they going to leave? What mark are they leading? Are they doing it just to get into college? Or are they doing it because they understand that their role as a contributor to society starts now when they're 10, not when they're 24, and that the trail they leave behind starts the minute someone snaps their picture? And if we can teach children that there isn't this bright line between off-duty and on-duty, but that life is life, and you ought to live it like people are looking at you because they are, then we trust them. And we trust them to be bigger than they could be because they choose to be bigger. And it's that teaching, I think, that is so difficult to do as a parent because what you really want to do is protect them and lock them up until it's time. But the bravest thing to do is have these free-range kids who are exploring the edges of their universe but doing it in a way that they're proud of, not hiding from. Hmm. Well, Seth, it was just as great to talk to you as I knew it would be. Um, is there anything I haven't asked you, anything you want to say or add? Um, you know, I, I, I trust the magic of your editing. This is a conversation that I've imagined having with you for years, and it's even better than I ever <laughs> hoped. I, you're just so, I want to use the word tender, in understanding what I'm trying to do mm. um, and really getting to the core of, uh, I mean, you gave me 20 blog posts to write, so i got plenty to keep me busy. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. We will let you know. As I say, I think this is going to be like the third week in January we were looking at Whenever. what we've got. And we'll let you know. And, um, and, if, you know uh, and you and I will just keep talking beyond this because I'm just Fabulous. so glad you're out there and that, that um, it, it means so much to me that you're listening, just that. So... Thank you, Christopher. Okay. All right. Thanks. See you. Bye-bye. Bye.